If you only build what people like that they've seen in a magazine or they've experienced, you're missing out on what they could like or what they could really value. Exploration is a key and curiosity is the key to keeping yourself going and keeping the world open. From NYC by Design, this is The Mic, a podcast that offers an inside look into New York City's most creative minds. I'm your host, Debbie Millman. From projects to products, inspirations, and more, join us each episode as I talk to members of New York City's design community about what makes design so outstanding. This season, we're exploring the theme of our future city. We discuss how New York is being revitalized, reinvented, and rediscovered through design. How do we make discoveries in the first place? It could be as simple as taking the long way home from work and finding a patch of flowers mid-bloom, or experimenting with a new recipe to get that perfect balance of flavors. But in the world of design, new ideas have the potential to completely change how we experience the world around us. Through the creative process and collaboration, these design discoveries, which may begin small, can grow bigger and better until finally they manifest in the physical world. In today's episode, we consider how design discoveries shape the vision of our future city right here in New York, and I'm going to talk to design luminaries Claire Wise and Wendy Goodman about their work, their methods, and of course what they have learned from their own discoveries in the design world. Our first guest is Claire Wise, a fellow of the American Institute of Architects and founding principal of WXY Architecture and Urban Design. WXY is a multidisciplinary studio that exemplifies sustainable community-first design solutions and was named one of the world's most innovative architecture firms by Fast Company Magazine in 2019. Claire's open-minded attitude and keen ability to develop creative design solutions has earned her many awards, including the Women in Architecture Award by Architectural Record in 2019. Welcome, Claire, and thank you for joining us. Thanks, Debbie. Pleasure to be here. We sense you may have a visionary creative process, and I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about your mission at WXY and your approach to designing public space. In a lot of ways, I see design as the ultimate nonverbal activity, but we communicate we need to communicate and we need to even communicate with ourselves in terms of like, oh my God, what do I do? What is our methodology in, in ways that really are pretty verbal? And so one of my favorite methodology phrases is waste not, want not. And, and I feel like it from the beginning when in 1993, I think it was, when I moved to New York, I think it's re it really encapsulates both why I kind of challenged everyone around me to think about how the public space could be better, but uh, because I saw tons of waste everywhere, but also because I think it's an ethos, actually, that is very much about what cities are about. 
that nothing n- nothing is wasted, whether it's someone young, whether it's people's mindsets, whether it's an opportunity to interact. And so that idea, I think, encompasses not only recycling and reuse, but I think it really also encompasses the idea that you can be surprised. You never know what can be saved or what should be saved or what what use you can put to something. Yeah, I think that's evident on garbage nights in New York City (laughs) (laughs) when there's so many things that people put out and so many things that people take away. Claire, why the name WXY? Oh, okay. I have to tell you that story because, you know, everything always with us involves barter. And so in Marcos, my partner, who's the Y, and myself, Claire Wise, we had a firm which kind of came out of my first firm with another woman, Ursula Warshall, which we were two W's. Anyway, so Mark and I were Wise plus Yo's. And Pretty soon, and I think it was 2012, we had two other partners who certainly, like, do credit, didn't want to just carry our names around with them. So we took the plus, and this was Jessica Helfand. Jessica was doing our identity. Again, we do, I do all of her homes, and she does all of our, at the time, our identity, she said, why don't we just rotate the plus so it can be a times? And pretty soon, W times Y was W X Y. And now people Ah. just say, they throw out the W and they go, you mean X, Y, Z? So I'm gone, (laughs) and I'm going to have to start a new W practice soon. (laughs) I love Jessica Helfand. I didn't know that you yeah, had that you can blame together. Jessica Helfand for the <laughs> WXY thing. Claire, I understand that right now you're in the process of redesigning and expanding the Javits Center. Not a tiny job. <laughs> Could you tell us a bit more about that project and how you even go about beginning such an enormous redesign of what feels like a universe? So nice to recollect, actually. Maybe three years ago, TVS, which is out of Atlanta, and they do really all the big and best convention centers. I got a call from someone I did not know at all, a guy named Rob Svedberg from TVS. And he said, you you know, when we come into cities, we really like to work with a local architect. And so us... And we just did that with Moody Nolan in, I think it was Nashville. And we, we're going to go after, with Turner Lendlease, the design build for Javits. So the, there was already drawings in a design. And design build is kind of the burgeoning you know, concept in New York. We're very traditional and we don't do stuff like that. So Javits is one of the... the first big public design build projects. And so they interviewed us, but somehow we got through the interview, which meant we actually had to come up with both a design and documents before we started. So as a collaboration, and if you walk by, I think it's 40th Street, go by 40th Street, there's a new facade that, that these three firms did together, which is the marshalling, vertical marshalling yard. So 
it's just for trucks, which is also a familiar theme. But er, during the process, because there was three firms, it was important for TVS to divide up the work. So New Nolan got the vertical marshalling yard, TVS got the ballrooms and interiors, and we got the pavilion on the roof and the farm to table kind of landscape. Well, I was pretty thrilled, but it required a very quick turnaround of what is a outdoor space where people will be using it for Javits. And I, I think it's really exciting because I, not that I know a lot about convention centers, but I've never been in a convention center that had a farm or had a, a kind of big pavilion that is kind of like a large farm to table restaurant. So I think it's gonna open pretty soon. And we learned a lot in the process about how design build kind of works, which means that architects and contractors are really in it together, which is interesting. Do you have time to work on any other projects when you're working on something like that that's so feels all-consuming? Yes, because there's a sort of fantastic team and group of people at WXY and the directors and associates and all the young architects and planners are all pretty dedicated to individual projects. So it gives me and uh, Mark and Adam and Lang kind of the freedom to kind of go where the urgent need is. Although I would say lately I've been trying to focus in particular on projects that are more challenging from a, like there are problems that are harder to solve. So I, I try and kind of leave it to others to work out the things that that are easier to solve. It keeps me awake at nights, in other words. So give me an example of something that would be considered harder to solve. So one of my favorite projects right now is working with the Rauschenberg Foundation on their artist residency in Captiva. And really that's an unsolvable problem in the sense that it's a barrier island. None of us can predict the future and resiliency means you have to adapt. So it's an adaptation plan uh, that has resulted in very small tweaks and a kind of revitalizing of the landscape. And and in the end, that wasn't that wasn't where we started because everyone wants there to be answers. And it's been really inspiring to work with a client who thinks actually maybe the most important thing to come out of their project is the dissemination of things you can do and how you can adapt to others, whether that's through the artists that get to go there, but also through project manuals, local contractors, getting the word out. So that's really exciting to work on work where the um, purpose, in a sense, goes beyond the project itself. I understand that working to develop and enhance public space, particularly in a city like New York, can be really challenging. I renovated a brownstone a couple of years ago, and just that nearly did me in. I can't even imagine what it would be like to work on a public space. And I imagine that that doing so, you, that you have really discovered some interesting new ways of thinking and working through the parameters or the obstacles that that face you working in New York City. How have you been able to navigate 
that kind of landscape when there are often so many unseen obstacles in your way that you don't see until you're upon them? I, I think people. I think the answer in New York is always people and finding the person who cares and finding someone who shares or even has instigated, like in the case of Warrie Price, the vision, like I still think Sea Glass Carousel and the Battery are the hardest projects of my career. And some of that came from the design ambition of the client for public space. Why shouldn't the public have something new? Why shouldn't the public have something special? Why shouldn't, you know, Pete Adolf Garden encompass the entire tip of Manhattan, even if you have millions of people who tend to trot on plants, or even if you have the challenges of people who are homeless, who need a place to live, and parks are the only place they can go. And and I'm still convinced that kind of that was a step to seeing what Pete would then do on the High Line, but that regular parks and regular public space in New York and keeping that ambition alive is one of the kind of great challenges. And I would probably put any public uh, restroom we've ever done as challenging. And the latest most challenging is doing a gender neutral public bathroom. So that's the current super challenging project. What's the most challenging aspect of that type of project? Well, I think in New York, we really, there are many agencies for, all, for very good reasons have rules and they only rely on what's been done before. So it's very hard to do something new. That, that seems to be the case pretty much universally, right? How do you do something new when nobody's done it before without falling flat on your face and humiliating yourself? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's a universal rule. And when it comes to public dollars in the public right of way and in a world that, you know, you can get criticized over the, the internet thousands of different ways, I think we have become more risk adverse in, in maybe the wrong ways too. Do you think that we're risk averse because we're afraid of that criticism or is there another reason? I think we're afraid of that criticism for doing something new. We being the royal we, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I've seen now over the last 20 or so years how every, for example, every brand identity that's redesigned, and that's sort of my field, is always almost universally panned. And then within a year, it's embraced so that if there are any more changes, the very thing that people used to be outraged about, they now are defending. It's sort of an interesting way of, of considering change, that, that people just don't like it. It makes them feel insecure. It makes them feel vulnerable. And therefore, they will rail against it. And that's what's really difficult in architecture, because building things are expensive. And the Eiffel Tower was one of the most panned buildings in the world at the time. In a lot of ways, some of the best stuff happens by accident. I mean, for us, historically, either something that could happen very quickly which was the case of the Museum of Jewish Heritage, that little visitor center was so quick that no one knew what it was going to look like. But I think some of the other projects have benefited from people not seeing it totally, but only seeing it 
as it got built when it was there, because if you can get one person who has that vision to say, yes, I'm a multicolored facade in the Bronx for a school for the arts is a great idea. Because if you take it to their committee, <clears throat> you might not actually get that idea passed. And then then you get sort of design by committee and safe design. And that, to my mind, isn't really what amb ambition and maybe inspiration are about in architecture. Basically, if you only build what people like in mag that they've seen in a magazine or they've experienced, you're missing out on what they could like or what they could really value. Claire, I understand that you've had a bit of a winding path to ultimately arrive at your career in the design industry. Can you take us a little bit on that path and how you eventually arrived right here, right now? I think that's the real truth is everyone has an extremely winding path to get to wherever, you know, they end, at least in being able to, what do you call yourself? You know, now when I call myself an urbanist, I kind of know what that means or an architect. When I started out, I had no clue. I didn't know when I was younger, I thought I was, I hoped I was going to be a doctor and a I wasn't going to be a doctor, then I definitely wanted to be a fashion designer. And I didn't know that there were architects that designed buildings. How I missed that, I don't know. I was perfectly good at other subjects. But yeah, it was an accident how I kind of learned that architects existed. There wasn't as many women in the field then as there are today. So there, there was a lot of ways I could have gotten off. I had kids pretty early. That was a reason why I started my own practice. But I had great mentorships along the way. I consider early on, there was an architect that I grew up in my same town, David Lieberman, who was an inspiration. And today he's still an inspiration. He's in, both in music and art. And later on, Charles Moore, he's not alive anymore, but he was a famous postmodern architect. Deborah Burke, Diana Agrest, I mean, I think that this circuitous journey, Andrea Woodner, because of the Design Trust, I think actually Ursula Warshall, my, one of my first partners, who still makes all of her own work and uh, makes books. I think that really that, that journey to kind of, okay, not teaching, yes, teaching, not build, you know, building your own work. No, actually working with contractors to build your work. Um, Thinking you can build, you know, you can even design something like we did in Blue Dunes that's as big as from Atlantic City to Providence. It'll have an influence to, oh, are we going to, how about designing a water fountain, a drinking fountain? So I think all of those things, architecture is this giant field that you actually can do anything in, which makes it really hard to track a journey. So... I think the admission that the journey is kind of it is probably an important one for me to still look back and realize, okay, from not knowing what an architect was to thinking an architect, an architect can design buildings but do much more than that is sort of where I'm at today. Your work includes an emphasis on more sustainable approaches to design. 
How do you envision the future of our cities through this perspective? Do you think that's going to ultimately be a prerequisite now for most projects? I think it it is and has to be. I think it's more than a label. I think we've gone through a period where LEED certified um, was really, really important, but we're getting beyond that. I think Passive House helped with that. But I, I think the larger ideas are the important ones. You know, I get back to kind of this phrase I used, waste not, want not. I think waste is the frontier for sustainability. And that's not just energy and water, which we've really focused on, but it's building materials and and human dignity in life. And that sort of the efforts around design for freedom are another example, I think, of sustainability, because if culturally and socially we don't sustain hu- dignity and human dignity, then ultimately many of the kind of more tactical efforts to yes, oil, no oil, yes, electric cars, no electric cars will fail because we're kind of failing sort of humanity here. Claire, the last question I want to ask you before we bring Wendy in is, I understand you love to hand draw your design sketches. And and I think that that's sort of becoming a bit of a lost art. How does the act of discovery and inspiration appear through your process of sketching? Drawing is, I think, critical still. And even knowing that kind of people, we rely on computers to actually execute, but even Revit is not a design tool. And really kind of getting the connection between observation your brain and your mind, it is like I'm imagining writers, how they still kind of jot notes. I think that without drawing, I really wouldn't be the person I am today, period. And I even if it becomes harder and harder to find, you know, Prismacolors, I will continue to draw. <laughs> I feel the same way. And it's so nice to hear that. Claire, thank you so much for joining me today. If you could stick around, though, I'd really love to have you join me again after I chat with Wendy Goodman. Are you cool with that? Absolutely. And I need to hear what Wendy has to say. Right? I'm so excited. Wendy, Wendy, it's so wonderful to have you join us. Wendy Goodman is the design editor of New York Magazine, one of the great magazines of the world. She has crafted an extensive career writing about architecture, design, and fashion across New York City's most esteemed publications, including Harper's Bazaar and the New York Times Magazine. Wendy, thank you for joining us today. Something that we here at NYC by Design love is your Instagram feed, which feels so spontaneous. And we wonder how that has been influenced by your approach to editorial curation. So I have that question, but first I'm wondering if you could also tell us a little bit more about how you arrived at this sort of legendary career in design editorial. Instagram is such a very interesting and curious sort of phenomena because, of course, it's like our own personal little diary. Each person can can really, it's this portal into somebody's brain, their emotions, their politics, God knows what, everything. So uh, I, 
I see it as a notebook. I see it as my notebook because I'm very visual and I'm very moved emotionally by what I see all the time. I kind of use it as a, as a diary. And I, and I'm very aware that because of my job, I must keep it up and I must, <laughs> I must pay attention to it. But I, I also, I mean, you know, there are pros and cons to Instagram and to all our social media because of course, we can go down the rabbit hole and spend way too much time going down those lanes. Some of them are very productive and gosh, the de- democracy of it is so incredible because you can contact people that you really admire, that you'd love to meet, that you'd love to do a story on through direct message on Instagram. I mean, it's incredible. So I would say for me though, it, it's quite a personal, it's quite a personal kind of experience. I'd love to know what it was like for you to work with legendary editors like Anna Wintour and Elizabeth Tilberis and Dominique Browning. I mean, you've worked with the best of the best. Adam Moss. Well, as Claire mentioned, I mean, my career has been because of the mentorship of these incredible people in my life. I I never would be doing what I'm doing were it not for Carrie Donovan, who was really the first but we, really going back before that, uh, there was a beautiful, amazing friend, man, Robert Hayes, who worked at Interview Magazine. And he just sort of said, invited me to the party. He said, why don't you come and do some covers for Interview? I had no idea what I was doing. I, I knew that I sort of loved photography and fashion and this and that, but I kind of just took a dare for myself to go and do something. I thought, well, this could be really fun and interesting. So started freelance styling and then got, you know, then was asked, I can't remember, but I think I I was then interviewed by Carrie Donovan and and asked if I wanted to join Harper's Bazaar and work for an editor who had just come from England. And it happened to be Anna Winter. And, you know, the, the the experience of learning and it's just my career has been so endowed with so much so many gifts from so many people i can't even begin to tell the story of it while you were at harper's bazaar you i believe you also worked with legendary designer fabian baron yes i did what was the most significant aspect of design that you learned from him you know, I think he's such a genius and Liz was such a, 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 a genius and a joy. The joy of working with Liz was so phenomenal. And, and Fabian was one of those people who I initially was very intimidated by Fabian because, you know, he was sort of a design god. I just thought, oh. And I, I learned really about editing, I think. I learned about how your eye takes in everything. And yet for a photograph, and especially for a magazine layout, you really have to be very specific and you have to be very focused on what makes a story work. So I think I learned a lot about the, the, the rhythm of photographs in, in a magazine. How is New York Magazine now focused on amplifying design? Such an interesting time. Well, I have to say, I, I cannot say enough good things about the editors at at this magazine. They're the most phenomenal group of talent I have ever had the privilege to work with. I've worked with so many editors at at New York Magazine, starting with Ed Kozner when I was a fashion editor there, Caroline Miller, 
Adam Moss and now David Haskell. And they, David Haskell, phenomena. I mean, he has so many talents and he really came on board as the editor in chief just at the verge of this extraordinary time and pandemic. So David's had to really, I, I don't know how he's done it because we've made a magazine over Zoom for the last, you know, since the lockdown started. And that in itself is a challenge, but also the types of stories and the the consciousness of the magazine about politics and the city and what's happening on the street. And every single person involved in this magazine is brilliant, I really have to say. Our photography, our photography director, Jody Kwan, is another one. She is laser sharp about what we need, where we need to be going. And she's relentless. She never gives up. Yeah, it seems it feels like every couple of years or maybe every decade or so, New York Magazine sort of experiences a renaissance. And it suddenly feels very of the moment and in the moment. And it feels that way right now. I've lived in New York my whole life. I'm a native New Yorker. So I've grown up with this magazine and Milton Glaser was a, a, a friend and a mentor. So I, I feel like I've been watching it. So, you know, for my whole life and it, it feels like it's really significantly reflecting the moment in a way that no other magazine is. You work on the twice annual design issues. You are the design editor of New York Magazine. How do you go about creating the themes for these issues? Well, I have to I have to say that those those themed issues that did your right happen twice a year. We stopped doing them in fact when David came on board because David felt that instead of doing those special issues, we should do a design story in every single issue. So I thought, "Oh, well this is really really a fantastic opportunity to keep our design coverage flowing and going. And those issues were really fun to put together, but very challenging, as you can imagine, because they were always surrounding an issue and one theme. And scouting in general for stories that are the right fit for the magazine is is a constant, a constant wonderful challenge. But it's not a it's not a shelter magazine. It's a news slash culture read. And, you know, I'm very focused on finding stories about the city and how design drives people, challenges people living in this environment. How do you go about discovering those stories? It's a really complicated question to answer. I have many, many ways. The best way for me is to get out on the street, get on the subway and scout, to go meet people, to go talk to them, to, to visit their homes, to see what they're doing. If that's not a right fit for the magazine, you know, in the conversation, it will lead you someplace else. I mean, I think the hardest challenge for me this year, of course, like everybody, is being stuck at home and not being able to do my usual sort of jumping on the subway, going out to wherever. But I will say during the pandemic and a billion <laughs> COVID tests, I did I did scout and I did do shoots. And I think, you know, the the personal contact is the most important. I mean, yes, you can do a lot of research on the internet. Yes, there's Instagram, but there is nothing like a conversation with someone and actually talking to them to really, really get the goods. Do you think that all good design has a story? I do. 
Yes. I, I mean, that is the basis of what I look for. If I am looking at something and I cannot ascertain what the story is, who lives there, why they've made the decisions they've made. I, to me, it's, it's like a, it's like a, it's like one of those pieces of food that are made for restaurants windows or bakeries windows. It's like there's, they're just for show. You can't eat them. And I think that you've got to be able to sink your teeth into a design story and really get in there and understand the whole, the whole sort of beauty of the thinking behind it, why people make those decisions and how design has been a kind of byproduct of what they love or they don't love. Can you share a recent design discovery that you've made about New York City that might have surprised you? I think the best stories are when I'm surprised. I think I'm always looking for the surprise. I'm always, I'm always thirsting and questing for the, you know, a new designer, someone who's done something new or a designer. Yesterday, Robert Stern opened an affordable housing building. He, he's worked on Edwin's place with breaking ground. And I just think that's so exciting. I think that, I mean, that's a whole other sort of uh, topic, affordable housing in our city, but I think that people are always doing new things. Creative people are always sort of, you know, going further, raising the bar for themselves. And that's where I want to be. I want to be there with them to tell that story. How have you witnessed people discovering design today in New York City, particularly through this last year and a half of the pandemic? Well, I think what's been so fascinating is how we've had to grapple with design. Design is always born of necessity. Well, it's not always, but good, great design, good design, I think is. And, you know, the whole idea of outdoor dining, for instance, and the whole sort of, you know, how do you build a little shelter on the street? Can you build it on the street? How does it impact the traffic? How does it impact the, the, the foot traffic? I mean, what we've seen with the restaurants is is incredible. I think how they've solved those problems for themselves and for their, their customers. And I think the whole bike traffic that we're becoming a city of bikers <laughs> more than we've ever been before. It's it's also incredibly worrying to me because it, it's it's become so dangerous. But it's a great thing that, you know, people are getting out and being able to bike more and exercise and get from A to B like that. But I think that this this last year has challenged everyone, particularly how we use our streets and how the, the, the remaining problem, of course, is storefronts, like the empty storefronts that have been just so abandoned. And there's just doesn't seem to be any help to get them back on their feet. I think that's incredibly sad and something we have to address. It's hard to walk through the different neighborhoods yeah. of Manhattan and not just end up weeping because of how many storefronts there are. Also, as somebody particularly attached to design and how things look and feel, now that the restaurants are going to be allowed to keep their little outdoor cafes, I do hope they become better designed and <laughs> not just... <laughs> Yes. I know that's yes. a longer term problem and probably one I shouldn't even have to, you know, talk about right now, but I do hope that that happens. Given how much fun your Instagram feed is and how much people have been on their phones through the pandemic, do you think that social media now is 
influencing the way we discover new things? I think it certainly is. And I think there's a great sort of danger in that. As one magazine editor, I overheard saying clickbait. And that really scared me because I thought, uh-oh, we're, you know, are, are we just going to go for things that we know will get a lot of views and a lot of likes or a lot of comments? It's like the integrity of design and the integrity of everything has to be kept in mind. And you have to keep in mind, you know, why are you doing what you're doing? Why why do you think this is noteworthy to bring to someone's attention? And we all know about the toxic side of this experience, but I think it's something we really need to to be mindful of and and not do stories just because they're clickbait. I think that's a very dangerous situation to sort of invest in. A friend of mine referred to it as performative reality. And, and I think there's this danger of projecting into whatever we're seeing as reality and assuming that it is when it's really just a sort of total illusory story of the totality, <laughs> to quote a, a dear friend of mine about it. You know, I, I love being inspired by design. There's a very different feeling though, spending 30 minutes online reading New York Magazine or going through the pages of the magazine, which I actually prefer to do, and spending 30 minutes on Instagram. You know, you come away from both with completely different feelings and and that sometimes is unhealthy. Yes. That's a very, very kind way of putting it. (laughs) Absolutely right. Wendy, my last question before we ask Claire to, to rejoin us is this. Do you believe that the process of discovery in the outside world is connected to the process of personal discovery? I think yes, for me, for sure. My career has been led by passion. I've been led to the different areas and twists and turns in my career because of the things I've really been sort of obsessively passionate about. And so, yes, I'm constantly exploring things outside my realm. And I think I'm always kind of thinking it's important to challenge myself outside my comfort zone because every time I scout something, I think you've got to, you've got to go further in everything you've ever known to, to find that next thing. So yes, I think exploration is a key and curiosity is the key to keeping yourself going and keeping the world open. Thank you. That's. That's a mantra for living right there. (laughs) Thank you for that. Before we dive back in to speak with our guests, let's hear a message from our sponsor. Finding the perfect paint color has always been difficult until now. Color Shop peel and stick samples are the easiest way to choose color from top paint brands. Made with real paint for 100% color accuracy, Color Shop samples are mess-free, damage-free, and always delivered overnight. Peel, stick, and make design decisions with confidence at colorshop.com. Claire Weiss, I'd like to ask you to rejoin us so we can all talk together. Welcome back, Claire. Thank you. That was so exciting hearing Wendy give us that insider view. So my first question for both of you is... How does creative discovery appear in your everyday lives? This is an opportunity to sort of compare and contrast in a way that I I very rarely get to do. How about constantly? I'm going to cite 
an example. So, you know, one of the, the things we're doing in a current project is designing a building that has a courtyard and it's for kind of sustainability reasons. So it's it, like we put it through this modeling so you really see it's being done to create better ventilation on both sides of spaces. So, but you know, because it's a courtyard too, you don't get to do courtyards often. So I happen to be this week in the Bay Area and I'm staying for a couple of days at a Julia Morgan building, her women's club in Berkeley. And I wander into the courtyard at seven in the morning and I went, oh my God, this is genius. That I thought, because we're starting to work on the landscape of the courtyard and I'm imagining it's like dappled landscape throughout the courtyard and some of the, and she, what she does is she makes these landscapes work both you feel like you're in a green courtyard but as you these little narrow doors as you go through the door it's like you're going through your own garden to get to the courtyard it's literally five feet wide she does that in five feet and it made me realize that it's not a bad i always thought it's a bad thing to buffer buildings with landscape but actually if you look at the landscape beside a building a different way, it's a kind of curtain or a green filter. Anyways, totally, I was like re-inspired. I was like starting to pace the courtyard and stuff. So that's just like one day. But I think I feel like that happens to me every day as long as I have those quiet moments. And that's why I, back to COVID, referring to kind of some of Wendy's comments about even not getting on the subway to travel. It's not even like I have to get on an airplane. Literally traveling to a different neighborhood does the same thing for me. Absolutely, Claire. Could not be more right. I'm a born and raised New Yorker. And the, the sort of amazing thing that I have this job that makes me re-explore my city every single second. And what always amazes me is I can be walking down a street and notice something I never noticed. And I've walked down that street a million times. Or I notice something and I think, oh my God, I have to find the history of that, just like Claire's saying about Julie Morgan. And then I go down that rabbit hole because history excites me so much. So I would say you can just have this moment in your neighborhood just by opening your eyes in a fresh way. There's also something I think really special about those of us who have lived in New York City for as long as we have, to be able to know the history of different buildings. Like, oh, before that was a gap, it was a bank. And before it was a bank, it was a Polish bakery. And before it was a Polish bakery, you know, it was whatever. And I think that there's something really remarkable about that continuity and the knowledge of that continuity in thinking about the future and what the possibilities hold. Well, I love what Clara said about recycling, repurposing, because New York City really has some of the most beautiful architecture in my mind, and it's industrial architecture. And I think to repurpose those buildings and even, I mean, it, it, it's such a very beautiful city and some of the architecture is just so wretched. And I think that repurposing buildings that exist is such a wonderful thing to do. 
My next question has a bit of a preamble, but I think think you'll appreciate it. In in the movie about Jackson Pollock, probably more than 10 years ago, there's a moment where the actors, Ed Harris and Marsha Harden, who is playing Lee Krasner, they're looking over Jackson Pollock's sort of first splatter paintings. And Lee Krasner looks at Jackson Pollock and very sort of clearly and firmly and confidently says, I think you've found some, I think you've discovered something new. I think you've, I think you've hit it. And I'm wondering as artists and designers, how do you know when you've discovered something new and fantastic? Is there an extra sense you have in this regard? Do you get goosebumps? Do you have that spidey sense? You know, what is it that alerts you to that phenomena, which is so rare and precious? Well, I, I call that kind of that eureka moment feeling, and they can be large and small, but I do, I'm a, I believe really strongly in kind of intuitive thinking, and through any project, there's those moments you have to have to set you a direction, because there's so, with design, there's thousands of choices, like thousands and thousands of choices, so in a lot of ways, the kind of those moments of clarity, I'll call them that moment of clarity, is really a moment of this is the right direction. This will synthesize. This will bring everyone together. And I, I have those both on trying to solve how do you make something actually a district versus just a bunch of buildings stuck on a block. And, I, and they have that same thing and I've had, so I've had those about places and sometimes it's more like, it's very pragmatic. If you ask the right questions, you start to understand the problem underneath the problem. And once you understand that problem, whether it's as by history, by practice, you start to see that possible solution and I do think sometimes, kind of like that Lee Krasner moment, you're in a place you've never been before, right? And I feel like that's happened all the way along my career. I remember that happening bluntly. That first freestanding building we did in New York, that little metal was actually lead-coated copper Museum of Jewish Heritage. You know, it was a six-sided building. It just, it was not symmetrical. And just hitting that moment and realizing you could do something that was not a shape that was familiar to anyone, but solve the problem. So in a way, does design does, for me, mean form, space, light, materials. But it's not always just, it doesn't come in like a category. It's like, oh my God, that just could solve the problem is more like the feeling. I think it's for me that that sort of eureka moment is always felt literally physically kind of in my chest and my stomach. I can tell when yeah. I see, meet someone or see something and I go, this is different. This, ha- this is like the lightning bolt striking thing. It's, and, and often I'm led there because I have a hunch about someone or I have a hunch about a place I want to investigate for a design story. But once there, I mean, that kind of physical reaction 
does not lie. It really, it really leads you. It's your inner voice kind of leading you through. How do you think that people that are visiting New York City could experience some of those feelings as they walk through the city? Is there a way to approach observation, curiosity, witnessing? What, what would you recommend for people coming to New York, looking to experience that special sense of discovery? Well, I think, you know, going to these extraordinary places like the High Line and, and having the experience of seeing what, what it's all about and going to the Metropolitan Museum and experiencing the space let alone the collection of art there. But I think the experience of space in New York is something like walking into Grand Central Station and just experiencing again the effort that went into creating this heraldic space. And I haven't been to the Little Island, but that looks remarkable. I think that, and just walking down the street and just getting the energy of the city and, and all the diversity in this city. That's the beauty of New York. So just getting into it. Well, Wendy's a- added some of my favorite places, including the museums. I mean, you it is still, to me, indescribable to go, knowing how tiny the Guggenheim Museum is in some ways and how big it is in other. And I feel that way about going to visit the Conservatory Garden in Central Park across the way. And at the same time, I can't recommend more basically the bike thing. So I I say to visitors, take the ferry to the Rockaways so that you can go underneath the... Verrazano Bridge, and get a city bike when you get there and bike the length of the boardwalk and stop for tacos and do other things. But, like, it's unbelievable. It's like the... And I feel that way about visit, go to Greenpoint, go to Williamsburg, go to Bushwick right now. It's It's a party, in a good sense, happening all the time. And I... And then that makes me want to go, yes, go to the Bronx. I used to take, we were, when we were first working on Bronx School for the Arts in the Bronx and with the point, I would take my then four and seven and eight-year-olds to, the, to Hunts Point and they would just experience the Bronx River while I was doing what I was doing. But there was one woman, I think she did... She was, she made tamales and other stuff. She had a little van she parked on the street and that would be our food treat. So the other thing I would say to New Yorkers is it is all about food. You have to explore all the neighborhoods and go for it. Now that we are in a moment of reinvention in New York City and reinvigoration again, what is your vision for the future of design in New York City? Do you think that it has changed at all during the pandemic in terms of the future and what we require of design. Do you think there's more pressure on design now than ever before? Well, I'm going to let Claire really answer, but I do think that the pandemic, aside from everything else it's done, has made us realize how design can help us elevate our mood, our spirit for what it gives us, but also literally in the way we navigate the city. 
you know, it, its design is essential. It is part of our DNA everywhere, whether people realize it or not. And design is going to help us rehabilitate and recover from this this year. I agree. I think it's the it's a superpower of the city. I mean, the in addition to the pandemic, there's also I think the reawakened understanding of how Black Lives Matter, but the murder of George Floyd has given rise to people really going, oh my God, I, many designers, older and younger, have been overlooked by just the systems in place. So what I would say is I'm really excited for people I know and people I don't know who really kind of were, their work is and was under-recognized getting the opportunities to design the kinds of buildings and spaces that, you know, are going to be amazing and are going to add much more to New York. I think they're one of all of kind of design and architecture's problem is because of the connections and resources involved, it's kind of self-limiting, like, or it can be this self-limiting prophecy. And, and, so many colleagues from SLM to Victor Body Lawson to, you know, Latoya Camdang to are in different in different sizes of firms and their own firms are starting to get access to commissions. And I just hope that won't stop. I, I kind of want the fact that there are now more voices being considered to actually and this includes women too, but to expand so there's just more commissions. I think we have been in an era where honestly, there's been a lot at the very, very top, but not a lot that really could grow really exciting design, you know? And so there's been too big a division between kind of not having great design for everyone. Yeah, I think division is a really interesting word because I think it's the opposite of diversity. You know, and I think that having that diversity in our community moving forward is really the only way we can unify our communities. I have one last question before I sadly will let you leave. I'd love to know from both of your perspectives, what advice would you have for budding professionals? in the design community? One piece of advice. There needs to be more support for people like Wendy Goodman and for media and press interacting with, like I feel like that so many younger people don't even see it as viable to be a design critic, to be a, like it's not because, and I think that we can complain about design being really under huge economic pressure, well, the media really has has been. And so my one hope and wish is that the culture of dialogue around design really gets supported and expands. Because actually, without it, there's, then you're kind of isolated. Like, right now, like, in order to be an architect, you actually need to be in dialogue 
with things around you. And really the only, it gets back to my earlier comment, I, I know we're in a nonverbal field, but it's actually really verbal. And the it's because that impetus to, to do things comes from dialogue. I completely agree. I think that my advice would be to, to get off your computer and reach out to people and talk to people you admire, you want to learn more from, you want to get to know people who are inspiring you. I think it's really getting off the iPhone, off the Instagram, and having real contact is vital. Thank you both so much for joining us today on NYC by Designs the Mic. It's just been an honor to talk with two extraordinary women, extraordinary design legends. One of the best parts about making new discoveries is sharing them. And I want to thank both Claire Weiss and Wendy Goodman, who have so generously shared their thoughts about design and how design discoveries can be found right where we are here in New York. Join me next month to talk even more design on the mic. Follow at NYC by Design on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and subscribe to the newsletter for the latest in New York City design.